0: Well, um, if you're just joining us, my name is Jesse, I get to be the pastor here, and welcome to Christ the King Anglican Church on this nice, cool Sunday evening, and we are walking as a church through the book of Hebrews, which is an appeal, an appeal to mostly urban people living in a pluralistic setting, are really struggling with faith are really struggling with the reality of God in their lives. And this whole book is called basically a giant exhortation. It's a sit down, take a deep breath. I know things are hard, but here's some things to think about. Here's how I'm praying for you. Here's how some things you can press into in your own life. That's really the movement of this book. And he's calling the people, he's saying, press into this faith. Press into this reality that God is real in your life and everything he promises will come to pass. And a phrase that we've, I didn't, you know, I can't believe we've used so many times in an Anglican church. But again, here in this chapter, the author is coming in hot. He is coming in hot every single Sunday here as we step through these chapters. No pop psychology here in Hebrews, really, or anywhere in the Bible. But the author comes straight in and he's making a strong appeal to the people here that are reading this letter. And as we look at this passage today in in Hebrews chapter 3, there's going to be some pretty heavy ideas that he's going to get into, some ideas that we're going to explore together. And so as we walk through this passage, I want to give you one anchoring image as we think about some of the thoughts in this passage. Now, if you've been to Wellspring, you might have heard this example before. I gave it there one time. But many years ago, about uh, 180 years ago, on the East Coast, there's a place called Niagara Falls. And if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, it's on the U.S.-Canadian border. It's a place where there's these, of course, giant waterfalls, but if you've been there, there's a mist that's there, present in the whole city because of the waterfalls. And you can hear the waterfalls from miles and miles away. There's this sort of low roar that you hear from wherever you are in Niagara Falls. Well, one morning in 1848, residents woke up to hear a weird silence. When they went out to the falls, they saw that the falls were no longer flowing. And the reason for that was because it was an extremely cold winter, and it was an extremely windy winter, and the combination of the temperature and the wind blew so much ice into the canal that it began to sort of stop up and then collect more ice and collect more ice, and that created a dam over Niagara Falls, which is giant, for 30 hours. So for 30 hours, the town of Niagara Falls was completely silent. Now, eventually, with heat and pressure, the Niagara Falls broke through and water began to flow again, and Niagara Falls is what we know it to be today. But for that one 30-hour period, Niagara Falls ceased to actually flow. Now, as we look at this passage today, I think this can be a great image for us to bear in mind as we think about the people of God interacting with God in the scriptures. It's a great image for our own spiritual lives together with God. And we can think about the grace of God and the love of God and the promises of God being like an unending well, a giant lake that never ceases to flow. But when God's people embrace patterns of sin, patterns of disobedience, patterns of walking away, it can be sort of like ice begins to clog up the flow of God's grace into their lives. Now, that doesn't mean God's grace has stopped flowing. It just means their ability to see and perceive and receive this grace is, has been stopped up by like ice for a period of time. They've stopped themselves up to the goodness of God and the blessings that he's pouring into their lives for that period of time. So what we see in this passage and what we really see in this whole book is a strong appeal. It's an exhortation to break the ice, to soften their hearts, hold on to the faith that they have received, despite all the challenges that are going on around them. And to walk into all the fullness that God has for them in their entire lives. So, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 6. There are Bibles in the pews in front of you if you want to look at this old-fashioned paper version of the Bible. And just to give us a running start, he starts out chapter 3 by saying, Jesus is greater than Moses. And all of us as Christians, we go, we know that. But he's talking to people, again, who are thinking about moving back into Judaism because they're saying, well, at least in Judaism there was clear lines of what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do, and I can always measure myself against those lines, and I have community, and so maybe life would be better if I went back into Judaism. He's saying, no. Jesus is greater than Moses, and he uses these images. He says, Moses might have built a house, but Jesus built the world that the house was built on. Moses was a faithful servant in the house of God, but Jesus is the son of God, the heir of the house itself. And so he's saying, don't look back to Moses, look forward into who Jesus is. So that's how he starts out. And then we get to verse 6, which if we read it carefully and slowly... For many of us, depending on our uh, theological tradition or the kind of church we grew up in, can cause yellow flags or alarm bells to go off. Because there's one word in here that really might catch our attention. He said, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Catch the word? I emphasize it there, but the word that really jumps out to us is that word if. If indeed we hold fast to our confidence and boasting of our hope. A question what is this whole if phenomena about? I thought <laughs> the whole idea that we celebrate here at this church, a Protestant church, is that when we come to know Jesus, we are his forever. What is his whole if stuff about? Well, I think this if is central to what he explains in the rest of the chapter and really the rest of the book. And I think if we were to survey Christians throughout much of history and we looked at their living theology, not their spoken theology, not what they would write down on a piece of paper to say, what do you believe? But their lived theology, most Christians throughout most of history, which would include us today, probably reside on one of two poles or our hearts push us to one of two poles on one pole. We have the Martin Luther type of fear before he came to knock those theses on the door, which was this fear that, I don't know if I'm in the family. I don't know if I deserve God's grace. I don't know if I'm a son of the beloved king. And so he would beat himself and worry himself to death about whether or not he was in the family or out of the family. And he lived in this constant fear, constant anxiety of the implications of what it meant not to be under God's love, but to be under God's wrath. So each day and each week, he would, he would worry himself to death about whether he's living in the right way for God because it meant whether he was in his family or out of his family. I've spoken to people that live with that fear. And the other poll, which I think is where many more people fit into today especially, is what I call the entitlement grace poll which is the polar opposite of living in fear. It's, it's just almost the sense that God has given us this grace. We're actually entitled to this grace. God owes us this grace. We do what we want. We live how we want. We say what we want because, you know, God will forgive us. It doesn't really matter what we do. It's all good. No need to worry. My insurance is here. I am entitled. <laughs> That's the other pole. But what we have here in verse 6 We have these words. We are God's house if, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now what does he mean by this? What does he mean? Well, one thing to notice is that this holding fast to belief is a condition of being. It's not so much an outward action of doing. What he's saying is we are God's house. We are being God's house if we hold fast to the confidence and hope that we have in him. It's sort of this argument from ontology that means we are, therefore we do. So it says we are in God's house if or we could say when we hold to this confidence in Him. I was on a ski lift last year. It's a very Colorado example for you, just to show you that we're contextualized. Uh, I was on a ski lift last year, and we were all wearing masks because it was cold and windy, and there was a guy too over from me that was just talking, and he used the word out instead of out. He said, out and over. He said, oh, yeah, it's over there, over there. And I said, hey, are you from Pittsburgh or northern West Virginia? And my friend Aaron, who's not here this evening, said, Jesse, that was quite presumptuous of you. And then he took his mask off. He goes well, he said other words besides what I'm going to say here. He said, how did you know that I was from Pittsburgh or West Virginia? I said, well, I'm in the CIA. No, I didn't say that, but I love accents, and I love languages, as I shared here the other day, but that little twang, everything else sounded normal, but when he said, hey, yeah, you know, I got a house over there, I said, ah, you're from northern West Virginia or Pittsburgh. Now, If we all left here and we started to say, let's go outside or maybe we can go over there, that would not make us from Pittsburgh. That would not make us people from Pittsburgh. We are people from Pittsburgh because we say out or over, but us saying out or over doesn't make us people from Pittsburgh. So this is what I think verse 6 is telling us, that if we hold fast to the confidence and hope we have in Jesus, it shows that we are in the house of God. It defines who we already are. So we live a life seeking justice and peace and wanting to care for others and loving them. That's a good thing. But that doesn't make us a son or a daughter of the most living God. That's a good thing to do. But we seek justice and peace and we desire to care for others and to share with them this good news of God's generous invitation to all people. We do that because We are in the family of God, and this is the imprint of his nature upon us. We don't do that to become Christians. We do that because we are Christians. So this is what I believe the author is saying here, as we look at the greater context of the book. And this is an important thing to cover, because as we read through the book of Hebrews, there will be several if statements. There will be several statements that if you just sort of took by themselves and you didn't compare them to the greater context, it might push you more towards the worrying and anxiety pole. Of how you read the scriptures. It might lead you to a place that God doesn't want you to actually live in. Now if we go back to verse 1 for example. If we zoom out on the chapter. It says therefore holy brothers. You who share in a heavenly calling. Now other versions might say. Yet therefore brothers. You who are partakers of the heavenly calling. The assumption at the beginning of the chapter is. He's writing to people that are already. Already or are being actively partakers of Christ himself. That they're already members of the family, they're being partakers of God. They're not conditional listeners, that if you read through the book of Hebrews and you follow all the things that the book of Hebrews says, then you can become a part of the family of God. What he's saying is you're already a part of the family of God. This is who I'm writing to, therefore partakers. If we go to the end of the chapter, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Again, this is the same concept. We have come, past tense. We have come to share in Christ. What a blessing. This is a perfect tense. In the Greek, it's a perfect tense, meaning it's, meaning it's in one sense, it's perfected. We have come to share in Jesus Christ. So again, just to beat a dead horse, he's not writing in a conditional sense. It's more of since you are in the family of God, since you are partakers of God, you will show that by holding fast to the confidence you have in him, by leaning into the hope that you have in him. This is the context of the whole book. So this is critical for us because it means for us here that if we know Jesus, that the Spirit of God has worked inside of our hearts to the point where we can say Jesus is Lord, That means we are partakers together with him, that we are in his family, that he loves us and he counts us as part of who he is saving. We are part of his family. So this passage that we read and other passages that we read in the book, we take that mindset and we are part of his family and we show that we're part of his family by living into the way that this book and the rest of the scriptures call us to live. I don't know about you, but this is a tremendous grace for us because it takes us off the fear-based pole, the pre-Luther Theses pole. It takes us off of fear and anxiety, and it tells us in many times, in many places, that God has us, he holds us, he loves us. We are in his family. We are partakers together with him. And what God is saying is, so therefore you don't have to expend so much energy wondering whether you're in the family or not. You don't have to spend your life living in fear and anxiety, questioning are we in? Are we part of God's family or not? The source of Niagara Falls is never going to stop flowing, it's always there and present, pouring grace into our lives. My daughters, they don't need to wake up every morning and say, Hey, Dad, am I in the family still? Hey, I just spilled some milk over there. Does that mean I'm not your daughter anymore? That would be ridiculous. It would be a tremendous waste of their energy to worry about that kind of thing. I want them to spend their energy living and growing and learning to be all who God made them to be, not worrying whether they're in the family or not. This is a tremendous grace that God gives us, and it takes us off the one pole. Now, here's the turn in the passage. Since we are in his family, he uses this phrase twice in this chapter. Do not harden your hearts. Hold fast to the faith that you have. Now this takes us off the other pole, the pole that pushes us towards entitlement or what some people would call cheap grace. There's a response to this truth that we are his family. We are his family. Yes, let's celebrate that. But do not harden your hearts. Turn and walk together with him. He says, do not let ice build up in your lives that constrains the flow of God's grace into your life. And he's pointing out that, he's pointing out, especially as he references the Israelites here, he's pointing out this doom loop that people often walk into of this this loop that people can fall into of sin and the hardening of hearts leading to more sin and leading to the more hardening of hearts. Now, we experience, this is my own term, a doom loop all the time in our relationships. Some of you might have experienced this. I experienced this this week. Uh, There was a time earlier this week, let it be known to this congregation, where I had poor sleep and I was not in the best of moods, and my speech to my wonderful wife was not, let's shall we say, seasoned with grace. And to top it all off, my speech wasn't seasoned with grace, there was a question back, and I snapped at her. And you know, if you do something to someone like that that you love, and you feel bad, then there's often a sense of guilt that comes in. It says, oh, you shouldn't have said that, Jesse, and you have this internal monologue. Yes, I know, I shouldn't have said that. And there's this... Then there's this sense of saying, Jesse, you should apologize. And then in my mind I said, yes, you're right, I should apologize. But what happened at that moment? For whatever reason, I hardened my heart. Not my proudest moment, but I hardened my heart and I said, I'm just not going to apologize right now. Let it be known, your pastor is human. Thankfully it was temporary because I have a grace-filled wife, we're good. But I've seen doom loops happen like this in my own life all the time, where you step out in sin, or you make a mistake, or there's some issue, and then you know there should be a turning back to the Lord, or a turning away from it. And there's a moment where you make a choice, and you can fall into what I call a doom loop, or what this passage is calling the continual hardening of hearts. Of course, we've seen doom loops happen in relationships, and they can lead much further than just a spat between a husband and wife. We've seen patterns of sin and habits that can spiral down and take people away, much further and further away from where God is. And, and this spiral that happens where when you feel like you're distant from God, you feel almost embarrassed, like you don't want to go back to God. And then that leads to more vulnerability, and then you're further away from God, and then you're even further embarrassed to go back into God's presence. It's this hardening of heart, this sin, this doom loop cycle that so often happens. Sometimes you sprinkle in little external challenges like the folks in Hebrews were receiving and all of it sort of adds to a cocktail of driving you away from the grace that God wants to give into every single one of your days. The blessing that is constantly pouring out into your lives. That we can spiral ourselves away from this movement of love that God has for us to draw us further into a deeper life with him. The cycle we fall into, a hardening of hearts, a stepping away from God, a walking away from the blessings of His grace. And what this author is saying is, don't be like the Israelites. Don't be like those who hardened their hearts and walked into sin, and then that caused them to harden their hearts more and walk more into sin, and they walked further and further away from the grace of God. Do not harden your hearts. Soften them. Be open to the loving grace of God that is always flowing Into our lives. This is the appeal that he's making. And just to make sure. That we know that it all doesn't depend on us. We have verse 13. He says this. He says. But exhort one another. Every day. As long as it is called today. That none of you. May be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. The word exhort is. Perakaleo. It means to walk along with. Or to come alongside. And to shout that's literally coming all alongside and saying, hey, don't harden your hearts, soften them. So I want to ask you all to turn to your neighbor. I'm kidding. I want to ask you to do that. But what he's saying is that we're not meant to try to muscle this by ourselves. Yes, we don't live on the fear and anxiety pole. We don't live on the cheap grace pole. But guess what? We don't have to live and walk in this medium tension by ourselves. But we're called to walk along next to each other and exhort each other. Now you might have heard me say oftentimes as we come to the confession time, it's a small phrase, I slip it in there, sometimes maybe you'll catch it, maybe not, but I say, because we all stand under one cross, because we all stand under one cross, we offer one confession together. The truth that we're trying to impress upon ourselves here is that we're not meant to walk on this alone, that all of us can fall into doom loops, all of us can say dumb things to their wives and then not apologize a minute later. All of us can have challenges. All of us need paracaleos people to come alongside us in our lives, to exhort us. This is what we confess, that we all struggle to live up to this Christ that we partake. It's an, everything, it's an everyday thing. That's why the author says, as long as it is today, we can exhort one another. I love how John Christostom put it, and we'll just end here in a moment. But he put it this way. He said, when the author says today... He wrote that so that we would never be without hope. Exhort one another daily, he says, that is even if persons have sinned as long as it is today, they have hope. Let them not despair so long as they live. For as long as we are in this world, the today is in season. That we always have the opportunity to walk back into God's grace, to chip the ice away, to open the flow, and to be open to his grace that's continually pouring into our lives. And one of the ways that we demonstrate that here at our church is that that bowl in the back says, remember your baptism. And notice, I just thought it was actually, it's not frozen. (laughs) I'm pretty good. Um, (laughs) We are baptized into the family of God. That will never change. And when we remember that baptism, we remember that we are baptized into the family of God, and that will never change. But when we say, "Remember your baptism," it's a parakaleo. It's a coming alongside and shouting saying, "Do not harden your hearts. turn to him every single day. As long as it is today, there is hope to turn to him and to receive his grace, and to live as people with soft hearts. This is the calling of this passage. This is the calling of this book. This is what we press into as our life together as this church. So let me just read the collect that I read earlier. Grant us, O Lord, to trust in you with all our hearts, for as you always resist the proud who confide in their own strength, so you never forsake those who make their boast in your mercy. So as his people who have no fear about being in his family, let us lean in together on the mercy of God live as people with soft hearts, open to his grace that's always flowing into our lives. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures, which always reinforce to us the truth that we are part of your family, that we are partakers together with your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would bless us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that these would not just be intellectual thoughts, Lord, but you would plant them deep within our hearts to bear fruit for your kingdom both in our lives and in the way we live our lives towards others. I pray for specifically, Lord, for people here in this room, Lord, that for circumstances in life, personal decisions, other decisions, Lord, that ISIS built up in their lives, Lord, we pray that you would break that ice, that you would open the flow of your grace, that they would experience your presence and the blessing of your love that is present to us every single day. So bless us, Lord, we throw ourselves upon your holy and great mercy through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.